On this episode of the Naturist Living Show, Nudist Family History. This episode of the Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca Welcome, dear listener, to episode 127 of the Naturist Living Show. And uh, it's been over 12 years of the show, and that's very exciting. And um, I'm very excited for the what's coming up, because we have so many ideas, so many possible interviews that we can, well, not just possible, uh, we'll, we'll do them. People are very receptive. The show is in the top depending who you, whose statistics you look at, we're in the top 10%, uh, sometimes top 5%. In one case, they even put us in a top 1% of all podcasts out there in terms of listenership. And that's wonderful, and I want to thank you for your support. This episode of The Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Ralph, Riley, Michael, Scott, and Jean-Francois. Thank you so much for your support. Samantha and I really appreciate it. So there is a um, Twitter feed called Naturist Vintage that I had been watching for a while. Um, it's not that old, but it's uh, I'm recording this in uh, 2020, December 2020, and I think it's been around for about a year or so. Um, but it's a very interesting one. There's lots of interesting contents from old magazines and from the history. And then when I was listening to uh, one of Scott Klein's New Nudist podcast episodes, I learned that the person behind it, uh, Evan Nix, is, um, is his grandfather, or great-grandfather, um, actually, uh, was a really key figure in the nudist movement in North America, and that that's how he got into it. And it's a fascinating story of how he got into it and how he discovered it and how he became a nudist himself. So um, I'm not going to repeat what happened in Scott's interview, um, and you can go listen to that. There'll be a link in the show notes because it's a good interview about how they were introduced to it. But I was more interested in the history. If you've been listening for a long time, you know that uh, uh, I think history is important. It's History is important to understand why we're here, why we do what we do, and how we got here. And there's a lot that's been forgotten, a lot of very important stuff behind this movement that makes it um, a movement, not just an activity. And I know you've heard me complain about the fact that so many people look at this as just a mere recreational activity, and and it is, and it's fun, and I'm not criticizing it. Um, But there's so much more. It's so impactful when you look into it, it changes people in such a fundamental way. And that's what they discovered in the beginning, and that's why it was a movement. And it still is to many people, don't get me wrong. But for many, it's simply running around naked. And that's okay, because it's fun, 
Skinny dipping is great, but it can be a lot more, and there is a lot more behind it. And I'm totally in favor of fighting for the basic human right of being your natural self. There should be nothing illegal about nudity. There should be nothing inappropriate about it. It should not be offensive. Uh, it definitely should not be a crime. I totally agree with that. But beyond that, when people take their clothes off, it changes them. It improves us. It gets us away from a lot of ills in society. And you get that when you read the old articles, when you see what people were discovering. There's no point in rediscovering stuff that's already been discovered when you can simply catch up on what people have already done. It's a lot faster than starting over again and again and again. And a lot of what I've done, a lot of who I've become is from reading the history and understanding what's happened. So the the story that Evan tells is uh, so interesting, and he's become such an expert on the area. Um, and he's even talking about doing a documentary about it, which would be incredible. Of course, I had to contact him. Fortunately, he's a fan of the show, so he was happy to be on the show. So I'm a fan of him. He's a fan of me. Perfect, uh, a perfect combination, and made it that we definitely wanted to talk to each other. So uh, I'll stop talking now, and we'll start listening to what Evan has to share with us. My name's Evan Nix. I'm a filmmaker. Um, I uh, I'm a, on the board of directors for the Western Nudist Research Library here in Southern California, and um, I'm a nudist researcher, so to speak. Researcher, what what kind of research are you doing? Well, so uh, you know, I'm very interested in in the history of the nudism movement in America specifically. Um, I got involved in this sort of research and with the Western Nudist Research Library specifically because of the uh, sort of ancestry research I started doing into my great great grandfather, who was a prominent nudist in America in the 1940s from the Pacific Northwest named Rudolph Johnson. Um, so uh, he's been kind of the core of my research, and a lot of it has been around him and his uh, nudist legacy. But um, I'm interested in the whole nudism movement. I'm interested in the philosophical ideas behind nudism and naturism, and uh, I've just fallen completely headlong into it. So, <laughs> so I'm very interested in it broadly. So you were not a naturist. You have did some research about your great-grandfather, found out he was a nudie guy, and you went from there to headlong looking, researching, having a very popular Twitter feed, uh, joining a library board, obviously visiting a naturist resort, just from that original mm -hmm. ancestry research. Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up hearing stories about my great-great-grandfather. Um, my grandmother was... It, so. He would have been my grandmother's grandfather. And so my grandmother, who's still around, and um, you know, she spent her formative years on his property around these nudists. Uh, his, his nudist club was called the Cobblestone Sun Tanners. And, um, and so she had a lot of memories. She had a lot of photos, photo albums. So I kind of grew up seeing those pictures, hearing those stories. So admittedly, there was always an interest in it okay. for me. Um, but you had never visited a nude beach or anything, right? Right, right, yeah. I mean, you know, 
typical stuff, some skinny dipping, you know, as a teenager and some sort of fun childhood games like that. But, um, but no, I'd never as an adult with my wife or, or, or otherwise I'd never gone to a beach. I'd never been to a club until I started this research in earnest. Yeah. So what, what did, took you from researching and knowledge to wanting to try it? What was it that hooked you? Well, the Western Nudist Research Library, you know, I, first I started doing this research just from whatever channels were available to me, Ancestry.com, Googling, looking up whatever I could to try to learn about my great-great-grandfather and, and his club. And I, you know, quickly began to see that he was very involved in the national nudism movement. And so um, I, just through sort of searching around, discovered the Western Nudist Research Library and was lucky to learn that it was only an hour from where I live. So I made the trip there and um, that the library is on the grounds of the Glen Eden Sun Club here in Southern California, which is um, the biggest nudist resort in the area. And so, you know, I made an appointment before with uh, the then president of the library, Rich Hurst, and um, he, you know, had me come out. I um, was a little nervous, so I brought my sister, uh, who also has an interest in my great-great-grandfather and, and this history. And uh, we made a trip of it. We drove down. We met Rich at the front gate, and he gave us a full golf cart tour of Glen Eden. And um, we didn't get nude that day. My sister and I uh, would have probably been a little awkward for us, but um, but I, I, certainly my interest was piqued. And I came back less than a week later with my wife, my son, and we spent the whole weekend there. Now, and I'm curious, and you may not know the answer to this, but uh, I'm also at the eastern end in Florida. There's the American Nudist Research Library. And mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I've seen a number of researchers go there who are not naturists or nudists, and they don't jump in. They don't participate. Right. Why do you think you did? What, what, why did it grab you? What was it? What was going on? Uh, that's a good question and probably multi-layered, but, um, you know, I, I, like I mentioned, I, I, I definitely had an interest in it before. Um, you know, I even spent some time as a kid living, uh, with my grandmother, not, not really living. I stayed up there for a summer. Um, she lived on the property that my great, great grandfather had started his nudist club on. Uh, this was years after the club had dissolved, but she still lived up there. So, um, I got to see the land and the area where he lived. Um, he had built this great cobblestone house, basically a mansion out in the middle of the woods that he built by hand using rocks that he pulled from the Deschutes River, which ran through his property in Oregon. I'm sorry, in Washington. And um, the Deschutes River runs through Oregon as well. So. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I saw this house. We got to go take a tour through it. The people that currently live there let us in and... And um, I spent this whole summer living up there with my my cousin, and and we would you know go exploring on this land. He had acres of land out there, and um, go fishing, go skinny dipping in the river, and you know I don't know. I just even from that time, just always sort of f- found the sense of freedom in it, and and so I, I think I was always interested. So to me, doing this research might have been um, an extension of that <laughs> interest. And uh, and I think finding this library was just kind of the catalyst that allowed me to try it, you know. And so you're the first generation since your great-grandfather to be into it. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, my siblings are, they've dabbled in it. My my sister, you know, she'll go to hot springs and stuff. And my brother's been to a couple couple of beaches. But um, but yeah, my parents certainly would not have considered themselves nudists. Um, the, the, you know, I, I think they, like me, always had these stories in their lives. So they were very open to it. You know, when we were kids, we were given naked time after our baths to run around nude, the, you know, around the house. And it was never really like weird for us with the neighbor kids to go, you know, streaking in the backyard and stuff like that. So it was never really uh, condemned in our house. We were never taught to be ashamed of it or anything like that. But yeah, not not nudist per se. It's fascinating because, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very <laughs> into it as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what makes people get into naturism or nudism and why others are exposed to it, pardon the pun, and don't get into it, is something I still haven't quite figured out. And uh, obviously it grabbed you very strongly and it really appeals to you, uh, but it doesn't for others and it didn't for others in your family. So it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, from my experience, that's that's very true. You know, I've, um, I've brought my wife many times to Glen Eden now and um, she enjoys it. She uh, finds it freeing and enlivening, but... Um, she certainly wouldn't go on her own. She doesn't sort of apply the label to herself. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm always interested in that. Why? Why do I love it so much? Yeah, no, it's, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. And maybe somebody can do a research study at some point, try to figure it out. But let's talk about your great-grandfather, Rudolph Johnson. He started a club. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, he... Um, and w- oh, sorry, go ahead. Which club was that? It was called the Cobblestone Sun Tanners. And um, that wasn't its original name. That was the name it came to be known by. But uh, so this was in the 1940s. He was actually relatively older. It was later in his life that he really discovered it. And it was a slow process for him. He, um, he, I think he was a logger. He, he uh, from what I've read, loved to work with his shirt off. Um he started working with his shirt off, uh, apparently to help with his rheumatism, and um, and it just grew from there. He he felt free. He would go out and work in the in the woods and and remove all of his clothes. And um, he would even go work for logging companies. And I read one story that said that he was out with a logging company, and they would go out for weeks at a time. Um, and uh, and he would go off to these remote, more remote areas away from his company and remove his clothes and and cut down these trees <laughs> and one time he got caught by his boss <laughs> completely nude on the job and his boss apparently said you know if you're comfortable with it and you're not bothering anybody else with it i don't care go for it <laughs> so it's hard to imagine in the 1940s but <laughs> um but it was on these logging companies that he started to get uh see i guess you know the men on these companies would pass around sunshine and health magazine and some of these early nudist magazines and he started to be aware of it as a broader movement and um in uh the early 40s he started writing into that magazine started to connect with other nudists in the area and eventually formed a non-landed club called the cobblestone oyster gobblers hmm. which <laughs> as i've read was named after his cobblestone house that he'd built uh, which is one of the places where they would come together and and take off their clothes um, and then another place was a turkey farm, 
hence the name the Gobblers. And then another was a plot of land on Oyster Bay in Washington on the Puget Sound. So their name was kind of a, <laughs> a mixture of these three things. And um, eventually those other two locations became less viable as a meeting place. And he opened his personal property to be a full-time nudist club. And that's when he changed the name to the Cobblestone Sun Tanners. So it was a privately owned club, not a cooperative club. Right. Correct. And how successful was he? Well, there were a lot of clubs in that area at the time. Um, and his was certainly one of the main ones. And and I'm not sure exactly how many people he would have come through, um, you know, regularly. But I know that he and several other leaders of that area came together to form the Northwest uh, Division of the American Sunbathing Association, and that would have been in 1946. So, um, so he had a lot of people at his specific club, but he was also they were all involved in all each other's clubs and founding this regional organization together. Um, so. You know, he was definitely very, very active. I can say that. And so what happened at the club? Well, eventually, I think, well, he passed away in 1958. Um, and I think the club continued on for a few more years. There were members that were still very involved. And in fact, in 1959, the they one year after his death, they even hosted the American Sunbathing Association Convention, the National Convention, for the second time. Um, so they continued on for a few more years, and then I think into the 1960s, his family um, started working with an investor partner who wanted to turn it into a textile resort. In fact, wanted to develop all the land out into a big, shiny <laughs> tourist attraction. And um, that never ultimately happened, and I think eventually the club just sort of fell away because nobody really had an interest in keeping it going, unfortunately, which is a common story. It is, isn't it? Yeah, that's a lot of, uh, there's two types of clubs, really. There's the cooperative clubs where everybody gets together. Mm -hmm. And the advantage there is they don't die as easily because everybody's very involved, but they don't, they have trouble evolving or growing because there's no, often not a strong leader or it's very hard to make decisions. Mm -hmm. The ones who succeed tend to be the ones with a visionary like your great grandfather who really push it. But if there's no plan, when they go, there's a vacuum that is not easily filled. And that leads the club often to disappear. It's a, I don't know what the right solution is. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. And um, it seems like some are, you know, firmly in the on the one side while others believe the other. I've, I've done a lot of research into Ray Kinnett, who I know you know was a Canadian uh, mm -hmm. nudist leader. And he moved down to this part of the country and started Glen Eden in 1963. And he believed firmly in the co-op uh, model. That's how he uh, tried to run uh, his club, Sunny Trails, in Canada. And ultimately, when he came down to Southern California, he and his wife, Mildred, were looking for a club that they could fashion in that model. They spent a time uh, managing Olive Dell, which is still around here. And um, for one reason or another, the owner wasn't interested in that arrangement. And so he, he started Glen Eden uh, in 1963 and, and very soon after turned it into a co-op and it, it still has that model. And, and I believe that that's probably the best way to avoid that, <laughs> that fate of, you know, your club falling into the hands of some unwilling uh, inheritor, you know, that's not going to keep it running, doesn't have the vision. 
Yeah, I, I kind of believe in both uh, models. And the reason uh, is that you need a visionary initially with a strong personality to develop the club. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, my plan with Bear Oaks is I, I get to run it, as I say, as a benevolent dictator. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing what I think is best for the club and I don't have to get into arguments. I can make a decision in a matter of seconds if I want to. Uh, to as to where we should go. But once it's fully developed, I plan on turning into a co-op because I know that it will change very little and uh, more it'd be more likely to maintain it. The club will buy it from me at that point over a long period of time because I want it to survive. Sure. And I think when you look at a Ray Kinnett's situation, you kind of see that. He may call it a co-op initially, but I suspect that he was such a strong personality that everybody sort of let him run it as if it was his, mm -hmm. um, or, and he was probably very good at convincing people about what to do. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, he, his he, his legacy is still around there. You know, people still talk about the Canets around there. Clearly, he was a powerful force. Hi, it's Sam. We'll continue the episode in just a moment. I wanted to take a second to thank everyone who has already become a supporter on Patreon. Your support is truly making a difference and motivating me, and I really appreciate it. I'm passionate about sharing naturism with the world, and I want to produce more frequent, interesting content and have time for in-depth research and finding guests. But I need your help. Your support through Patreon will help me develop and grow the show and help me put more time into it. And if you'd like to support us and support me, visit patreon.com slash naturistlivingshow. I don't want to digress, but, you know, this sort of leads me to this sort of greater uh, <laughs> um, sort of discussion, or at least this this debate. And actually, this was one of the things that I've been so delighted to learn in, in learning about Rudolph Johnson was um, he was a part of this, actually, this great... Uh, movement in the in the early 1950s in the American nudism movement uh, to move away from the benevolent dictator model within our organizations. Um, there was a uh, man who I'm sure you've probably read about in the um, 1920s, 1930s in the American nudism movement named Ilsley Boone, who uh, yes. was referred to as Uncle Danny quite often. Um, that was a nickname that he gave himself. And he was a uh, essentially the founder of what's now Anner. He was the American Sunbathing Association's uh, executive secretary was his title for years. And he essentially had full sort of control over the board. Um, he held uh, control over all of the member proxy votes. And so he could sway the um, national elections sort of to his liking. People couldn't really uh, find the... The, their voice within the organization that they were looking for. And um, over enough time in the 1950s, there started to be a movement of nudist leaders uh, from around America that um, didn't agree with the way that Uncle Danny was running the American Sunbathing Association and essentially um, collaborated and orchestrated a legal ouster of Uncle Danny, a coup, so to speak. And um, specifically with the intention of bringing democracy into the American Sunbathing Association. This was one of the biggest things that I've learned about Rudolph is he was presiding over the organization. He was the ASA president the year that they orchestrated this 
event <laughs> and was a part of this conspiracy to oust Uncle Danny and to bring democracy. And and I think it's it's interesting. You just mentioned this whole benevolent dictator versus, you know, the, the democracy of having a board that votes on these things. And um, clearly people were divided at the time as they're divided now, but there were many that felt that that was the way the ASA had to go. And, and Rudolph was a part of that. Do you know what his role was in all that? Um, from what I've read, you know, there was a, um, as they were planning it, and this took place over years, there were, there, were, there were years of discontent where people did not appreciate Uncle Danny's methods. Which years are we talking about? Probably started, well, so, it, you know, the, the nudism movement during World War II in the 1940s really um, was almost non-existent. It had completely fallen flat. There were just rations on gasoline and rubber and people couldn't, <laughs> you know, uh, go out to clubs. So um, after World War II was when it really started to blossom. And 1946 or seven, I believe, was when Reed Suplee of Sunny Rest was elected ASA president. And he went to the ASA headquarters, which at the time was in New Jersey, Mays Landing, at Sunshine Park. And um, Uncle Danny wouldn't give him access to the company's books, wouldn't give him access to their records. And he resigned in protest almost immediately. And this um, sort of sparked a lot of the unrest around Uncle Danny. Um, he was outspoken about him. J Reed Suplee was, I should say. And so um, he and, and a group of others that sort of were like-minded started to communicate over a series of letters um, that they would carbon copy. It was called the chain gang is what they were referred to um, because they were chain letters. And through these chain letters and through the collaborative efforts of them, you know, obsessively going over the bylaws and looking for loopholes and ways that they might legally, you know, resolve the problem and get rid of Uncle Danny. Um, I think, uh, I think Rudolph was a part of this chain gang. And, um, and w from what I've read uh, in, in the nudists by Donald Johnson, the, the book, um, mm -hmm. they had, uh, so they, they sort of committed this event at the national um, convention in 1951, which was held at Penn Sylvan Health Society in Pennsylvania, another club that's still around today. And um, from what I've read, Rudolph and and his collaborators uh, spent several nights before the convention started over at Sunny Rest with the Suplees planning their moves with the lawyer. They'd gone through the bylaws and found a legal loophole, and um, and so they he presided over this national assembly, over this national meeting, which took place a few days later at, at Pennsylvania in 1951 in August. So, um, so he presided over the meeting. He didn't specifically, uh, I believe, orchestrate the new bylaws to be adopted, but he um, facilitated it. And, and I think another part of that was for the year that he was president before this meeting, he refused to call any board meetings um, because part of the plan was they wouldn't, want to give the board any opportunity to change the bylaws before they could change the bylaws. So, so it was a, a major effort that several people committed to and, and orchestrated. And he was just one of those people. Hmm. He's kind of a nudist freedom fighter. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so he, you know, when they committed this coup, uncle Danny was livid. He um, stormed off from the property that night he uh, drove back to New Jersey from Pennsylvania that night. He tied up the bank accounts. He tied up the mail. Um, 
the uh, he returned back to the to the convention the next day with his own public address system and held a rump convention claiming that the uh, collaborators, <laughs> let's call them the freedom fighters, uh, that their their actions the previous day were illegal and that he was the true ASA. They were not. And for months, um, actually for about a full year, the ASA was a fractured entity. It was it existed as two different factions claiming to be the true ASA. And Uncle Danny turned around and filed a lawsuit against the conspirators, the freedom fighters in a New Jersey court, and uh, ultimately, you know, uh, sued them to try to retain his standing in in the organization. And um, that judge uh, of that case determined, after reviewing all of the bylaws for the American Sunbathing Association, that um, the bylaws at that time were legal gobbledygook. That's what he called them. And um, he said that all of their actions for the last 10, 15 years were void and not legitimate. And he, he placed the American Sunbathing Association into receivership in the name of Norval Packwood, who was Ilsley Boone's successor um, and one of the freedom fighters, and determined that in order to really, um, or, or judged that in order to really determine who, who the rightful owner of the ASA was, they would, um, they would have to hold a new convention. This would have been one year later in 1952 within the court's jurisdiction at May's Landing, Sunshine Park in New Jersey. And um, this convention would have a court-appointed overseer to determine that everything was legal. It would be a popular vote decision as to who would control the ASA. And so a few months later, they held this convention. It was a nudist convention, of course. Everybody was nude except for the court-appointed overseer. This was in August in New Jersey. It was very, very hot, I've read. Um, the... Uh, court appointee declined multiple offers to strip down <laughs> and get more comfortable. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, the, ultimately they voted and they voted for the freedom fighters and, um, Ilsley Boone was officially ousted and he immediately turned around and formed the national nudist council, which would compete with the ASA for another 10 years or so. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it still keeps happening. <laughs> It does. It's it's unfortunate we keep fighting amongst ourselves, <laughs> uh, but without getting into details, a similar situation is happening in the International Naturist Federation. Mm -hmm. uh, a, another club that I know in Europe went through a similar situation where a person refused to give control of all the social media accounts, and basically they had to start over again because wow. the, uh, the he basically sh shut them down rather than turn them over. Uh, I think, and you know, even in Ontario, we've had we have a number of clubs that people will tell you had very uh, intransigent owners, <laughs> um, and I think it's because you have to be a pretty strong personality first to be just to be a naturist or a nudist, right? You're you're already going against the social norm, but then if you're going to start a club. You're going to be, especially in the 50s and 60s, uh, you are fighting against society in an open way. Absolutely. Uh, and you have to have a pretty thick skin and be willing to say, heck with you guys, I'm doing it. I don't care if you tell me it's illegal kind of attitude. Oh, yeah. And, and take incredible financial risk. You know, it's you can't find investors. It's, you know. Exactly. Your exactly. Your could be raided by police at any time. It's, it's um, 
So it's not surprising that it would attract some very strong, determined personalities. And uh, I think Isley Boone was clearly one of them. Mm, uh, yeah. I'm sure he believed he was right. And I'm sure he believed he was doing the right thing because I don't think he got very rich or anything off of it. Right. And he had plenty of supporters that, that you know, were on the sort of benevolent dictator side, you know. That, and arguably, he he did a lot of good for the nudism movement before people decided that that wasn't the model for their organization. Yes. I think for an association, it has to be democratic. That's the whole purpose. Mm -hmm. It's slow, inefficient, and we see that problem now. Federations, uh, which are all generally uh, cooperatives and, and democratic, have a very hard time changing as society has been changing. You know, in, in the middle 20th century, federations grew like crazy because they effectively had a tax on the movement. If you wanted to participate and join a club, you had to join a club that was part of the association and you had to pay an annual fee or you wouldn't get the magazines and you wouldn't know where the clubs are. Yeah. Now, with the internet, it's it's all becoming very voluntary and the federations have trouble getting away from this uh, obligatory membership to one that has to show its value. Exactly, Yeah. And I think if they, you know, if you had a leader, an entrepreneur who was doing a business, they would move much more quickly and try different things. And but it's hard in an associations when it's always uh, the old guard who will say, "Well, you know, we've always done it this way, and that's the way we should do it." And that's that's the downside of the democratic process in, in naturism. And you've got to go through the, you know, the the whole parliamentary procedure. It, it, it's a it, to your point, it's a very slow moving machine. And it's interesting to see how that contrasts nowadays between the, at least the North American organizations, you know, um, ASA is still very much under that democratic model. I'm sorry, Anner. <laughs> yep. Old habits die hard. Um, whereas TNS, you know, they seem to be privately run, but are facing similar challenges in terms of just not adapting to the, <laughs> the new landscape. Yeah. Well, TNS ha had a very strong leader in Lee Baxendahl. Absolutely. And when he pulled away because of health issues and, and passed away, that was gone. And I'm not sure that they had really created an organization uh, that was designed to run without a strong leader. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some very involved people, and it's a hybrid, right? TNS has these nonprofit right. uh, volunteer boards, the Naturist Education Foundation and the Naturist Action Committee. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe, actually, TNS has changed not very long ago and do a more of a cooperative model. Have they, have they not? I couldn't say, actually. I'm, a, I'm still a pretty new TNS member. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a there's a board now. I'd have to talk to Mark's story about that, but I know there's been some changes more recently. Mm. But yeah, it succeeded in really taking a market share because Lee Baxendall started it and ran it as a business, and he decided to publish a guide, and he, pu he was in the publishing business, mm -hmm. so he published a really nice guide. Um, and uh, it was not... It was willing to to take a stand sometimes and to say that something is good and something is bad. Uh, it's very difficult for Anna to say these are good clubs and these are bad clubs because, well, they're all members. Yeah, they are the clubs. Yeah, you, it, you can't really self-regulate in that way. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I've found yeah. that to be the case for sure. <laughs> so beyond your grandfather's history, you've uh, your great grandfather's history. Mm -hmm. You started a uh, Twitter feed. 
yeah. that's quite interesting. Yeah, well, so, I'm oh, sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, how did that happen? Yeah, so, well, my initial intention in starting this research was I wanted to make a documentary film. And I still want to make a documentary film. I'd like the documentary film to cover Rudolph and the events of the sort of political uh, event that I just described. Um, so that's still very much, uh, you know, a, a, a goal of mine. Um, but I found that uh, in doing all this research, I just had this rabid sort of desire to share it and um the uh <laughs> uh the threshold is a little lower for a twitter account than it is for making a documentary film so i just started this twitter account to start sharing some images and stories and and try to share some of this history and see if i could you know find other interested uh you know followers who not only i could share this history with but may potentially turn out to be um, you know, supporters of a film or a larger project or, or a, a crowd, so to speak, that I could source from. So I just started this Twitter account about one year ago, actually. And um, to my great delight, it was very, very popular very quickly. I just started finding a ton of followers and and um, people who already know about this history and, and sharing it with me and, you know, give me interesting leads on new things that I didn't know. And so um, it's become a, you know, it's a social network. It's become a, a, a place for me to go and find other like-minded naturists and history fans and stuff. So that was kind of the impetus behind it. Yeah, it's, uh, we're recording this in December of 2020. Mm-hmm. You started in December of 2019, according to Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're, the, uh, tw- the handle is Naturist Vintage, if anybody wants to look at it, and I would definitely recommend it. And you're getting close to 12,000 followers. Yeah, it's been a pretty steady, about 1,000 a month growth. And yeah, I started it, it was almost like a, um, a New Year's resolution last year to start putting my research out there a little bit more. And so... Um, it's only, you know, inspired me to do more. You know, now I'm recording interviews with nudist historians and and stuff like that with hopes of starting my own podcast. And, and uh, yeah, it's just become this, it's snowballed into this whole nudist history effort. <laughs> and the, why you call it naturist vintage, not nudist vintage? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you there. I just thought it sounded cooler. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, you know, and I, I do think that because there are, you know, I'm not the first person to start a Twitter account where you share vintage naturist images or pictures from these old magazines. And there are some that, uh, you know, maybe are a little more focused on the nudity aspect. And and I really wanted from the start mine to be more about history than just sharing naked photos and more about the naturist ideology. So I'm sure that that informed it. Hmm. And how do you decide what you're sharing? What's your uh, editorial process? You know, usually for me, it's something that either I'm currently researching and learning about, and I'll, I'll want to share, or it's something that, you know, comes from this base of knowledge I've already built. So, um, and if it's, if it's relevant, then, you know, I'll, I'll share something specific. Like um, recently, I did a whole thread on the Ilsley Boone story because um, I found there was a lot of there were a lot of parallels to the current American political situation. Um, Ilsley Boone had just been voted out and was um, <laughs> denying the results of that election. Was trying to overturn it in the courts, 
And I so, have no idea what you're comparing that to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I I, fe- I felt like it was just a relevant thing to share, and so I put a little work into it and and put together a long thread that um, detailed that story. And you know, certainly it's not a, a mirror of the current situation, but I think there are lessons to learn in history in general. Uh, and I think naturist history is one of those untapped uh, areas where. There aren't a lot of books written about it. There are, there are no documentary films about naturist history, or at least certainly not many outside of like a BBC film. Um, so, you know, I'm interested in in that. I think there there's a place for that history. I think people would be very interested to learn it. And I think it would be interesting to textiles, not just to nudists and naturists. So, so would you call yourself a naturist or a nudist? I personally kind of use them interchangeably. I know they're not not the same, but um well, they can be. It depends where you are and who you are, really. Sure, yeah. You know, uh I I don't know that I think maybe for me the subtle difference is I think of uh naturism as the sort of ideology and nudism as the practice, but I don't know that I necessarily adhere to that. I, I just I kind of I kind of use them both personally. And uh your your wife. I I won't get into the whole story about your wife joining you because uh, you told the story nicely on the the new nudist podcast with Scott Klein. So we'll just refer people to go listen to that. But does your wife share your interest in all this history? She. I wouldn't say she has the same inter- the same level of interest that I have. But um, you know, I'll I will talk about it ad nauseum, and she's often the only person in the room to listen. <laughs> so I think she's developed an, an interest in it if i if i mention ilsley boone or aloise knapp or one of these names from <laughs> from nudism's history she'll know who i'm talking about she could she could hold up a conversation so yeah she's interested in it i don't know that she per, she would pursue it but um she's a, a you know she's she's the best she's such a strong supporter of what i do she essentially despite all of her hang-ups <laughs> came with me to glen eden and and spent at this point, multiple weekends in the nude, just almost surely out of support for me and what I'm trying to do. So, um, so yeah, she's a, a strong believer in me at least. Yeah. I'm sure she believes in what you're doing, but you're making up for uh, both of you (laughs) is what tends to happen. Um, I was actually listening to a, uh, an interview with, uh, Barack Obama about his latest book Uh and they asked him whether his kids had read it and he laughed and he said, you're never, a prophet in your own country. <laughs> and it's true. My kids don't listen to my podcast. Yeah. Uh, my wife doesn't listen to my podcast either. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure you're going to have the same experiences uh, because they live with you. They already get enough of it. And yeah, certainly. they're there to balance you, I guess. It's true. Yeah. I think at this point, my whole family is tired of me talking to them about it. But <laughs> I'm still going to keep pushing them, them all to come try it with me. So what's the future with all this history and this research? You, ta- you talked about a documentary, a one-time documentary? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm, that, that was my initial goal. I, I would like to make a documentary film that tells Rudolph's story specifically. But um, my interests go far beyond just Rudolph's story. Um, I'm certainly going to continue to share it on Twitter and with that platform. Um, but like I mentioned, I've also been f- recording interviews, I was sort of inspired by um, Reed Schuster, who founded the American Nudist Research Library in Kissimmee, Florida, 
who um, for years while he was running that library would travel around the country and tape record audio interviews with nudist leaders. Um, and the American Nudist Research Library has all of these in their um, holdings. And uh, many, I've listened to many of them. There's just audio audio interviews with Ray Kinnett, with Ed Lang, with all these folks from the early nudism movement. And, um, and I found them to be incredibly valuable for my research and I'm sure for other researchers. And uh, it sort of inspired me to start conducting similar interviews, not just with nudist historians, but with actual um, nudists who are nudist leaders or who have been in the nudism movement for a long, long time. I, I, I just interviewed a woman who's 90 years old who once ran Lupin Lodge in California here. <laughs> and um, she she's still a, a everyday nudist. She no longer runs the club, but she um, she lives in a tree house in the Santa Cruz Mountains <laughs> that she built. <laughs> she's a, an incredibly fascinating woman. And and so, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking to find people like her and, and others who have a history with the movement that can just tell their personal stories. And um, I hope to start a podcast with that uh, in 2021. That's one thing in the future. And and um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to continue to research and, and hopefully work toward the end of, of filming a documentary. I'm glad you're doing that. I've done, as you know, a little bit of that myself with this podcast, but we're, we're covering not just history, we're covering all kinds of things. Uh, but I think these his, these stories are important. It would actually make uh, an interesting uh, documentary series. You know, they're, you're seeing more of those on places like Netflix or YouTube, for that matter. Yeah. You ever thought about that? Oh, I completely agree. Maybe you could make some money at it. I would, I would love to pitch it to a Netflix or an Amazon. <laughs> then I think that would be ultimately the goal because I think there are, like you said, I think there are a lot of stories to tell there. I think it would make a fascinating series. And nowadays, you know, you can even get away with showing nudity in these kinds of things. It's not... Well, yeah, it's kind of a bonus, actually. Yeah. Isn't that what Game of Thrones is all about? <laughs> a little sex, nudity, and violence all together? Sure. I don't know how, how sexy or violent a documentary about the nudism movement would be, but it would certainly have nudity. <laughs> <laughs> what, so why is this important? Let me ask you. I have an opinion, but let me ask you. Why is it important to do this and know this and research this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know... The, I, I hear a lot of um, the argument against it, especially just in comments on Twitter. It's like, why why does there need to be a movement for nudity? It's just nudity. People take off their clothes. And um, I, I understand that that argument. And, and I would agree that on a fundamental level, that's all it really is. That's all we're talking about. It shouldn't be a political thing. But the fact of the matter is, and I think you might have touched on this already, um, especially in America, but around the world, you know, nudity is human nudity. Social nudity is not a granted thing. It's it's a thing that we've had to fight for, um, and you know, especially when when it first started as a movement in earnest. You know, of course, there are thousands and thousands of years of history of people getting nude and even getting nude socially, but it wasn't a, a movement until people came together and organized to fight for the right. And um, and so, you know, I think it's very important to know that history and to know why we had to do that, because um, those rights that we many nudists and naturists take for granted now are, are not granted, and they could be theoretically taken away. So do we have to fight against police raids in our nudist parks anymore? No, not exactly. Um, but 
but it's certainly possible that we might in the future, you know, you, you just never know. It's, it's not the kind of thing we want to give way on. <laughs> so I think it's important to know that history. And I think it's important to continue to view it as a movement. It is a social movement, a political movement, a countercultural movement. And, um, and yeah, if, if we just treat it as, as if it's not, then um, we may not have the right to, to practice it the way we do. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, I see happening in clubs and in generations of naturists because over time, oh, people forget they get so comfortable. You know, I see it at Bear Oaks. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the young kids who are growing up don't know any different. They think this is uh, they un they understand it's different from mainstream society, but they don't understand why it's important. They've never experienced or even known the body shame. They just kind of see it from the outside. They don't understand how uh, the, uh, the the people how hard it is for people to accept it. Um, they also don't necessarily see how it changes and helps people who have never been in the movement because they've been in it all their lives. So my kids are kind of just take it for granted. That's just the way you know it is. And why is it so hard for people? Only when you see the history and you learn about it, do you realize it is a movement. It's not just fun and comfortable. It changes people fundamentally. It's a therapy that so much of society desperately needs, in my opinion. Now, I I want to recognize for some people it's it's just fun, and that's okay, right? Absolutely. It's it's just skinny dipping, and it's a, there's another concept which is a, a a freedom concept, which is also very important. Um, the the we sh it should be a human right to just be able to be without clothes, to be a human in its most fundamental way. That should not be illegal. But that's a completely different thing to what the naturist movement is actually about. Mm -hmm. Although, obviously, the naturist movement would totally agree with that and the two get along from that standpoint. But I find the argument between freedom and movement sometimes based on the fact that people don't understand that there's those two facets related to body acceptance and nudity. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's where uh, learning the history and reading it is important. You know, you talk about those recordings in Florida. Much to my chagrin, one that is missing is Dr. Maurice Parmley. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I, I've looked and looked, and in fact, I just got in contact with his daughter, who's still alive and lives in California. Oh, wow. And I interviewed her. Uh, because I couldn't get anything. And I asked her, I said, do you have any recording of your father? No. Oh. Like, do you have a video? Do you have any? No. No films, nothing. And there are two different types of people in this movement. There are the organizers, Ilsley Boone or whoever, the people who are builders and they are organizers. Mm -hmm. And then there's the thinkers and the intellectuals that really just in some ways create the movement for those builders to build on. Mm-hmm. But often the, the biggest voice is to the guys who are at the front leading and building the clubs. Uh, yet, despite the fact that Maurice Parmley's book, I think, had more of an impact on naturism and nudism in North America than anybody or anything else, because uh, five or six editions of it and thousands and thousands of copies were printed. Yeah, I would agree with that. So it's, it is a... It was also timed important. perfectly with the beginning of the movement, just in terms of it was published like right as all of it was sort of bubbling up in America, which just the timing was perfect. 
Yes, and I've gone through the archives at uh, Yale. Uh, the Maurice Parmley's archives are at Yale, and you read some of the things and the letters he was having, and the, um, you realize that the the builders of the movement were holding up this book because this was the look. It's written by a PhD who's an academic and a in society, a social. Uh, uh, sorry. He's sociologist, a, right? A sociologist. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're building. They're holding his book because he's a PhD in sociology and uh, economics. Like this is a learned academic guy, and he has written this book. So when you are a, a builder and you want to show government, you want to show the general public, you want to show the press that it's not just that we like to run around naked. This was the book, mm-hmm. and I think that that's why we call ourselves nudists. Uh, you probably heard me tell this story before because he changed the title of his book from the New Gymnosophy in 1927 to in 1931, the first big, large printing to uh, Nudism in Modern Life, which is the book then that everybody's using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Whereas Europeans built uh, a, a movement based on a lot of vacation resorts in France where you have two uh, people, who the Lecoqs, uh, who built a lo- the, the movement after World War II, and they called it naturism. And so I think naturism, I think that's what caused Europe to adopt that label more strongly than nudism. And it's so interesting that here we are, and <laughs> we sometimes use the words interchangeably, or they do have different connotations, but, but they both are, are used to describe this practice, this way of life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and or not. Sometimes they are used completely inappropriately. Yeah, uh, because to the general public, it just means nude. Mm-hmm. There is. A, I was in Paris uh, in September twenty nineteen, just a, about a year ago, and I have a picture I took of a massage parlor. It's one of the ones you know that are on kind of in the little back alley. Uh oh. And there's a sultry-looking woman laying down, looking at you with that come-hither kind of look on her face. Um, and it says, Massage Naturiste. Oh, no. Now, I'm pretty sure that she's, if she is nude, it has nothing to do with what you and I would call naturism. Um, but I'm sure there's nudity involved, which is all that they really mean with, by using that term. Yeah, um, my wife's a massage therapist. I think she'd probably argue that what she's doing is not exactly following the tenets of <laughs> of the massage way either. <laughs> right, right. So yeah, so that's that's the challenge. Is we, you know, it's been a hundred years that yeah. we've been telling this story, and still the story out there is that it's all about sex. Why is that, Evan? Tell me why. Why can't we get our message across? Yeah, I'm not sure, but I I do think about that, and I think about the fact that um, you know, and, and to your point, the the Parmelees of the time, you know, were the ones that were the idea guys that were were sort of thinking about it and writing about it and talking about it. And um, when I look around today, you know, it's obviously a very different time nowadays. But you look on Twitter, for instance, where there is a there's like a nudist Twitter. <laughs> if you're if you're a nudist on Twitter and you follow a few of the big nudists on Twitter, you, you tap into nudist Twitter where it's like um, just it's like the nudist community, you know, and it's mm-hmm. how it's reflected there. And um, and you see some types of people that that uh, you know 
are very intellectual about it. They're presenting ideas. And then you see other folks who are just posting, you know, memes of naked people that say RT retweet if you like to sleep nude <laughs> and, um, and uh, that maybe fall a little more on the sort of recreational side of those things. It's all over the map. But what I don't see is many strong advocates and personalities with exceptions, of course, yourself being one of them that are really talking about the tenets of naturism and what it means beyond just being nude. And um, I, I think that in a, in some ways, you know, we need more people like yourself that are doing that, that are really speaking to what it means beyond just what it looks like. Well, thank you for that. But do you think that there are, that people are able to absorb big ideas anymore? I think so. But, you know, I'm probably not the best sample to select from. <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a millennial who likes to read and most of my <laughs> peers aren't necessarily the same, but, um, but I don't know, you know, um, I, I think so. I, I'd like to think so. It just, it just seems that there's a lot of uh, very reductive way of looking at the world, you know, things are good or bad. Truly. And right. We have a problem. We're going to find one very simple solution to the problem because you know it has to be black and white. But I don't. My experience in my fifty-four years is that the world is nuanced and there are grays everywhere. But it's uncomfortable, and people don't like that. Yeah, I agree with that, and I also see, you know, in in this sort of highly social mediaized world that we live in, I see that there is a movement toward notions of body acceptance and body acceptance through uh, nudity and personal expression and things like that. And, and so, I mean, I do think there is a yearning out there for what naturism has to offer and they may not consider themselves naturism. They probably wouldn't even necessarily apply that label to themselves many of the people that are out there on Instagram, for instance, sharing, you know, um, plus size nude bodies and things like that. And, and, you know, I think there is a strong desire for, for what is behind that. And I think naturism should, you know, we're doing ourselves a disservice by not latching onto that and building a movement around that, you know, um, that is what, naturism historically has been we we've talked about the benefits of it being body acceptance and and things like that and the therapeutic you know benefits you get but but i don't see that being sold by our organizations by naturists as like one of the real benefits you get from this practice so i don't know i think if people can connect the dots which i think people can then you know, people will see it for, for the nuance there. They won't see it as the kind of, you know, stereotype that's out there of just new to Saul live in colonies and we are naked all the time, you know. I'm, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I, I, I do believe there is room for nuance. I think that people will, you know, people are capable of it. It just has to be about um, finding those those storytellers and those people to share the message uh, the right message for those people to, to hear. 
So again, if you want to uh, listen to the interview on uh, Scott Klein's New Nudist Podcast, I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can find a New Nudist Podcast. If you don't subscribe, you should. It's a great show, lots of interesting content. And uh, But the story of Evan and his wife and how they got into naturism is uh, an interesting one and fun to listen to. And uh, I hope you will also follow Nature's Vintage on Twitter. Again, I'll put a link to that, but it's at Nature's Vintage, one word on Twitter. And on Twitter, because you don't have to worry about nudity. It's one of the few social media, mainstream social media ones. There's certainly MeWe and a few others like Elo that are fine and some special private uh, naturist or nudist uh, social media websites. But in terms of mainstream media, Twitter is uh, really the only one that is totally comfortable with nudity anymore. And uh, so you can see all the Nature's Vintage posts. You can see the pictures and the images without any censorship, other than if you're not signed in, it's marked as sensitive content. And so it will be blocked until you create an account and sign in, which is free. And you can create an account without using your real name um, Twitter is not really interested in outing you or figuring out who you are. So that's all for this episode of the Nature's Living Show, and I thank you so much for listening. Again, my name is Stéphane Deschain, and I'm your host for this podcast and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Nature's Park. I make the show with a lot of help from Samantha Graham. Uh, she is doing all the producing now and the editing. She's calling and setting up interviews. It's wonderful. It makes it very easy and possible for us to keep going and do more episodes. You probably have noticed that these last few episodes are coming more frequently, more than once a month. And we hope to be able to continue this because we're getting a lot of support on Patreon. So please, if you think we're doing a good job, you don't have to. The show will always be free so we can spread the word. But if you feel you can help, if you can afford to help, and if you want to support what we're doing, patreon.com slash naturist living show one word you have to type it out because they won't it won't find us because we are sensitive content uh, it won't find us when you do a search and or you can just go to the website our show website is where you find the links to all the things we talked about uh, in the show notes and all the back episodes but also there are plenty of links as you'll see to our patreon you just have to click on it so if you want to support us and you can also keep uh, sending comments or send us a comment if you've never done it because we appreciate getting them. We appreciate hearing from you. We read them all. We don't always have time to reply to everyone, but we absolutely read them all. And the show's email address is contact at naturistlivingshow.com. Again, one word. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us again for the next episode of The Naturist Living Show. This episode of The Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. Traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social and moral benefits. Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca.
Ever since the beginning of time, there has been a curiosity about the mysteries of the sun and the human body. Today, as always, there are places where one can take off the clothes of hypocrisy and part the curtain of shame and guilt. In Canada's Sun Valley Gardens, for instance, there is a nature park where people like Carol, the girl you see here, come to get away from the responsibilities and tensions of our ordinary life. The people on the blanket enjoying the sun are Carl, his wife Marlies, and their two children. Carl is the director of Sun Valley Gardens. He believes that all men are brothers in the new, that clothes make strangers of our fellow men, that clothing is a weapon to make one person seem more important than another. This girl and two of her friends will become the main characters in our story.